The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Uh, Today we're talking about transformed at the second coming. You know, it seems like lately we've been talking a lot about the second coming. I don't know why. Um, I think it's because it's in the text. My wife says I can find it in any text, but no, I, I think it really is in the text, and that's why we're talking about it. The texts have been dealing with this. We are working our way through 1 John, going verse by verse, and last week we finished chapter 2. And chapter 2 ends, John tries to tie together abiding and the second coming. And we've talked about that for the last couple weeks. He says, and now little children abide in Him. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Little children, as we've been saying here, is from the Greek technia, which just means offspring. Okay, It's a child of the Father. So he's, when He calls them little children, He's basically saying, you're Christians. It's synonymous with saying they're believers. So He's saying, believers, abide in Him. And this is a big deal for John, and I really think it should be a big deal for us because we are to abide in Christ. That is our calling. And it's something that all Christians are commanded to do. But I think so few actually do. We abide in Him, first of all, by spending time in the Word of God. You can't abide in Christ if you're not spending time in the Word of God. You might have read it before. You tend to forget what you read. You need to read it over and over and over We also abide in Him by walking as He walked, but we don't know how He walked unless we're in the Word of God learning continually over and over. We abide in Him by obeying His commands, by loving our brothers and sisters. And this is what we're called to do, to abide in Christ. Our life is to look like His. Now, I know that's a big order, but it's a progression. We constantly work at that. He says, so that when He appears, and then He talks about at His coming, these are references to the second coming. John says, abide in Him so that. That's a purpose clause. When He appears at the second coming, they will have confidence and not shame. Now I said last week, this is talking about the Bema Seat Judgment. Believers, all of us are going to have to give an account to the Lord for what we have done. All of us. That's something I think we need to keep in mind. We looked at this last week, 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. So, you're going to receive based on what you've done. If we live a life abiding in Him, we'll have confidence when we stand before Him. Now, how much thought do you give to the fact that we're one day going to stand before the Lord and answer for our lives? I think that should really motivate us to abide. That we can't stand before Him in confidence at His coming. Verse 29, he said, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Now, if you see someone living a righteous life, you can know that they've been born of God. Because people who aren't born of God can't live a righteous life. 
course, I guess this could be confused depending on what you think is righteous. You know, sometimes we look at outward behaviors and we classify that, you know, as righteousness. The thought that we've been born of God causes John to speak in amazement about the manner of love that the Father has bestowed upon us in the next verse. So he talks about being born again, then he just goes into this thing about the love of God. And while the section we're going to look at this morning, verses chapter 3, verses 1-3, through 3, are actually parenthetical, it nevertheless picks up two themes found in 28 and 29, the hope of the children of God for Christ's appearing and their need for righteousness. He says in verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Now, let me just start by saying that this is a bad place for a chapter break. Okay? And you realize that me saying that is not sacrilegious, right? God didn't put those chapter breaks in there. God didn't put the verses in there. All right, They were added much later. Actually, the man responsible for dividing the Bible into chapters was Stephen Langton. He did that in the 13th century. So up to the 13th century, if we're teaching the book of John, we'd say, take the book of John, look right about in the middle somewhere, and look for this. You know, it would be hard. I mean, I'm glad that they finally did this. Then in the 16th century, actually it was 1551, Robert Stephanus divided into the chapters and verses. And like I said, I'm thankful for that because it would be really hard to teach the Bible without the chapters and the verse divisions there. They can be helpful to help us find text. But on the other hand, <clears throat> it's been said the first step in interpretation is to ignore the chapter and verse divisions. Okay? They're not always put in the right places. They don't always, the thoughts don't always change. So although they're helpful, we have to be careful when they come like this. Okay, chapter 3, we're starting something new. No, we're really not at all. He's playing off of the last chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1 is clearly connected to chapter 2, verse 29. So that our righteousness is a sign that God in His miraculous love has adopted us as children. The author begins his parentheses by urging his readers to recognize the greatness of the love of God. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. See is an exclamation and it's a command. As an exclamation, it shows that the Father's great love, it should amaze us. It's calling for close attention and scrutiny. Look at the love of God, he is saying. And the words here, what kind of love? This is from the Greek word potapos, which has the idea of something foreign, something alien, something inexplicable. We just can't, you know, what kind of love is this? What, what kind of unfathomable, amazing love is this. If you want to understand how this, what this word actually means, look at how Matthew uses it in Matthew chapter 8. And when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him, and behold, there was a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Now, there at sea, there's a huge storm. That would be pretty scary. But if you're an Israelite, you're Hebrew here, you're really scared because the sea is the gateway to the underworld. Alright, so they're not liking this at all. Alright, big storm. And Yeshua's in the boat sleeping. He's, he's chilling, okay? He's not worried about the storm. 
And they went and they woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, What sort of a man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. The word marveled here, thumadzo, it's just they're like blown away, okay? Now can you picture this? You're in a boat, all of a sudden the storm is just raging like crazy. You're afraid you're going to die. Yeshua gets up and he says, be calm, and boom! It's just like glass. The winds stop. You're on this beautiful, peaceful water. They saw the power of God right before their eyes, and they said, what sort, what otherworldly, otherworldly, unearthly type of man is this? What sort? Sort here is our Greek word potipus. What kind of man speaks in the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, their amazement over this. What kind of, what otherworldly type of person can do something like this? That's what John says about the love of God. So when he writes, what sort of love is this? He is saying, look, there is a love that is utterly unworldly to us. It's not like human love. It's alien. It's a love that human experience doesn't know. It's a love that's outside us. It's beyond us. We have a God who loves us with a love that is foreign to anything we have experienced. We have been made the children of God because we were born of Him. We were born of Him because He chose to love us with the saving love. God didn't look at us and say, man, they're special. Look at how good they are. Look at how marvelous, they, how they treat other people. Look how good they are to me. I think I'm going to choose them. No. It was because of His love. He just looked at us in our wretched, miserable state and said, I love you. Unconditionally, I love you. I love you so much. I'm going to make you part of my family. John wants us to be blown away by this. And we should be blown away by this. The word for love here is agape. Now let me ask you something. Is agape a special spiritual kind of love? If you've been paying attention a couple months ago, hopefully you realize, no, it's not, okay? We talked about this. When we see the word love in the New Testament, it's most often translated agape or agapao. And because many of those scriptures are talking about God's love for us, like the ones we're looking at today, it's not surprising that the, we would assume that those Greek words referred to some kind of superior kind of love, some spiritual, some kind of godly love. But that's not, that assumption is just not accurate. When the New Testament was being written, the Greek noun, agape, and the verb agapao were the most common general words for love. They were used in a wide variety of contexts, just like our English word love is. Variety of contexts. So the Greek agape is not as narrow as some people try to make it. All right? It's actually very similar to our word love. You know how broad our word love is? The Greek word agape can be that broad, but... Most often it is used for the love of God. But we assume wrongly that it's a special kind of God-type love, but it's not. And what I want you to understand is that godly love far exceeds agape in the sense you can't just say, well, this word explains God's love. No, you've got to look at the context, look what's being talked about. God's love for us is amazing. It's otherworldly. We can't 
wrap our heads around it because we love or don't love people based on how they treat us or some other kind of characteristic. You know, we like the way they look. We like what they do. We like certain things. And so we love them. Now, if they wrong us, we don't like them too much, okay? But God's love reaches out to people who are His enemies. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrated, not just talked about, He demonstrated His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing love. Understanding God's love for us should cause us to exclaim, like the songwriter, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He didn't die for you when you were His friend. He died for you when you were His enemy. It is amazing. And that's what John wants to focus on. Just look at this kind of love. He mentions born again in 29 and then 3 jumps right into this talking about it's amazing what God has done. He made us His children. That's the kind of love He had for us. He says the Father has given to us. This is a perfect active indicative. Now the perfect tense has to do with the complete progress of an action and its corresponding finished results. That is, it shows a present state of affairs from the writer's perspective based upon an action in past time when using the indicative mood. There is no tense in the English that has the same meaning. And the use of this tense connected to God's gift of salvation in Christ is one of the biblical bases for the doctrine of the security of the believer. God loved you with an everlasting love. Now that's, again, this is why we say it's an otherworldly type of love. Because we love people until they hurt us or wrong us, then we're like, okay, we're not doing that anymore. Aren't you glad God's love's not like that? If ever He loved you, He loves you forever. Forever. The word here, given, points to the fact that God's love is not earned or deserved. It's a gift that comes out of who He is. He has just chosen to do that. The Father's great love for us should instruct us how to love and how to treat one another. And that's what we're called to do. Paul says this in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God. Anybody ever seen God? How are you going to imitate Him if you've never seen Him? How, how can He tell us to do that? He says, be imitators of God and walk in love. How? How can we imitate a God we've never seen? Have you ever seen God? Do this. Have you ever seen Yeshua? In the Scriptures you see Him, right? He's manifest in the Scriptures. As Christ loved. Be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved. So we read the Bible, we see how Christ loved. You know what? We can do that because Christ is God. And so we've seen God in Christ. His sacrifice on the cross is an example. He gave Himself up for us. That's how we're to love. So that's simple, believers, isn't it? Just go out and and imitate God. If God does it, you do it. If God doesn't do it, don't you do it. That's what we're called to do. Not a problem there, right? (laughs) And it's the Father's great love for us that distinguishes us from the world. He says that we should be called the children of God. That is a hinna 
and is best understood as explanatory, clarifying the love that the Father has given to believers. The greatness of this love is shown in that by it, we're called children of God. Again, children here is from technon. It means offspring. God has brought us into the family. loved us so much, He adopted us. You know, for somehow in our society, adoption seems like, well, that's kind of bad. You got adopted. You know, that's not good. You got... That, that is way better than birth. When you give birth to a child, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit, right? It's just, that's what I get. Adoption, you go out and you say, I choose you. That's amazing. An adopted child should feel incredibly loved by those people that adopt them. And this is what God did. He looked at us, He saw how rotten we were, and He says, I choose you. You're going to be part of my family. Hmm. To be called children of God is an immense privilege because it means that God Himself chose us to be part of His family. And the best commentary on what it means to be children of God I think is found in John 1.12. He says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He gave the right to become the children of God. Right here is exousia. It means, in a sense, the ability or the privilege, the legal right, the personal ability to accomplish and receive something. The authority to become God's children emphasizes divine authorization to become what no human effort could ever accomplish brought into the family of God. And people, we have a legitimate right to be called God's children. That's what we are. And as children, we should look like the Father. And that's what imaging is all about. We're to bear the image of God to the world. Now, verse 13 here actually ends with, but born of God, which is ekthios ganao. The Greek verb ganao is in the aorist passive indicative and it's placed last in the Greek for emphasis here. The, this emphasizes the initiating and sovereign role of God in the new birth. It's through God's initiative and power that we are born as children of God. We don't bring about this relationship any more than a newborn baby causes his birth and life to happen. It's all of the sovereignty of God. But today, the world, because we are so man-centered... We, it's all about us. It's all about our choices, our decisions. We decided to follow God. Well, isn't God lucky that we would do that? No. He sovereignly reaches out to us. The only way anybody will follow God is because God has made them a child. They've been born into the family. And all of a sudden, now they have the ability to love God. Those who receive Yeshua do not do so because of their will. What about free will? Forget about it. Okay? Forget about it. All right? <laughs> because God, by His sovereign will, causes a person to be born again. And until He does that, man has no care about God, no thought about God, no desire for God. And because it's all of God, you know what it does? It takes away all grounds for boasting. And it leaves us bowing in adoration and awe that the Father would bestow His love upon us just because He is love. 
Then for emphasis, John says, and so we are. In other words, yeah, we are them. We're the children of God. This phrase is not found in the King James because it wasn't included in uh, the later Greek manuscripts on which the King James is based. However, this phrase does appear in several of the most ancient Greek manuscripts and the UBS 4, which is a rating of textual differences, gives it an A rating for certain. In other words, they're certain this is in there. These, there's guys, scholars, and they sit around and they look at the Bible and they try to decide because when there's textual variance, they've got to figure out what, is, what really should be. Or Did some scribe add this? Did some scribe take this out? They've got to figure all that out. And it's not a perfect science, of course, but uh, I think they do a pretty good job. And here he says, we're giving this an A rating. In other words, we think it belongs in the text. Okay? He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. The word world here is cosmos. It occurs 23 times in 1 John. And the meaning of cosmos varies according to the context. The same writer will use it different ways in different texts. We just saw in 2.15, he says, love not the world. Cosmos. Don't love the world. Now here he says, the world doesn't know us. And the world here denotes human society organized and functioning apart from God. It's just those people out there that don't know God. They function apart from Him. They go on without Him. The world doesn't know us. Now, as Lazarus writes this, he undoubtedly has in mind what he wrote in John 1.11. He came to his own. His own people did not receive Him. Christ came to the Hebrews. He was promised to them. He came to them. His own people they rejected him because they didn't know him because unless God opened their eyes, they were blind. Isaiah wrote about that. <clears throat> John is saying the world didn't understand Christ. Guess what? They're not going to understand you. Okay? So that shouldn't be a big surprise. Right? It was a big surprise to me the first time, you know, I started handing out tracts and preaching the gospel, and people were like, what the heck's that? And I'm like, how can you not? How can you not be excited? I mean, when I got a track, I, I just I was excited. God gave me life and things were, I just figured everybody who hears it's gonna be as excited as I was. I found out quickly, no. They're not. <laughs> Yeshua said, if they hated me, they're gonna hate you. Because you're representing me. They're never going to understand us. You know why? Because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. You can preach, you can show them Bible verses, you can have them memorize Bible verses, they're not going to get it. It's foolishness to them. Until God does His work of opening their eyes. Verse 2 said, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we'll be like Him, because we'll see Him as He is. Beloved, John often calls his readers by affectionate terms. This is a term that was used by the Father to refer to Yeshua at His baptism and transformation. So the Father called His Son Beloved. John's calling God's children Beloved. Common designation for the saved in John's letter. That's a term of affection. He says, we are God's children now. When is the now? Then. 
So the now is then, wait a minute, we're getting confused here, all right? Listen, yeah, the now is then, because we're not there when this was written. He wrote, you are God's children now, when he wrote this, which was around 65, 60 to 65 A.D., and he's telling those believers, at that present time, we are God's children. That was their current position. And listen, if you have trusted Christ, it's your current position. And it ought to dominate every aspect of our daily lives. We're God's children. We represent God. We have to talk for Him. We have to speak for Him. We have to act for Him. We're His children. John then tells them that what they are now stands in contrast to what they will be later. He says, what we will be has not yet appeared. What does Lazarus mean by this? Well, since he immediately adds that when Yeshua appears, we shall be like Him. He means that at that time, they were not like Him. Right? Follow me on that? He says, beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be, we don't know. It hasn't appeared yet what we will be. But when He appears, we'll be like Him. So, in other words, we're not like Him now. Right? Do this. You totally lost? <laughs> we're not like Him now. Alright? The word appears here is fanarao. This is the same word used in 2.28 for the second coming. Here it also refers to the return of Yeshua in the future from the reader's perspective. We could translate this, but at the second coming, we shall be like Him. That's what he's saying here. The second coming of Christ is mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. This is a major theme of the New Testament. It's a major theme. And if you ask most people, most Christians, tell me about eschatology. They'll say, who? What? If you ask them about the Lord returning, they'll go, yeah, that's in the future. That's about all they know about it. Okay? It's a major theme in Scripture, and yet people don't give it much thought. Now he says, we know that when he appears, the term when introduces a third class conditional sentence, which, and there's some argument about this, but this gives people a hard time. What do you mean when? If he appears? Well, it's not issued to question the second coming. I think it's to express uncertainty about the exact time it will take place. Alright? We know he's coming. The scriptures are clear. We're not sure when. Now, by the exact time, I mean day or hour. Because the Lord made it very clear when He was coming. But most people say, well, no one knows. No one. Well, He told us. If we can believe Him, we should know when He's coming. Look what He says to His disciples in Matthew 16. The Son of Man is going to come with His, with his angels in the glory of His Father. Then He'll repay each person according to what He has done. Now, see, we just talked about that. When He returns, He's going to repay you for what you've done. This is not talking about grace. Okay, this is talking about merit. All right, You earn certain things by the way you've lived. He's going to reward you according to what you have done. And He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So verse 27 is clearly speaking about the second coming. He comes with the angels to reward every man. Who's the you here? I say to you. 
Well, if we look at the text, you back up, verse 28 tells us that Yeshua is speaking to His disciples. Okay? So He's talking to His disciples. I say to you, I don't know who was there. I don't know how many were there. We don't actually know that. We just know there's disciples there. Alright? There's some of you standing here who will not taste death. You're not going to die until you see the Son of Man come. So Yeshua is telling His disciples some of them are still going to be alive when He returned in the second coming. What are the possible explanations of that verse? I mean, this verse is hard for people. They said, because the Lord's saying, listen, you disciples, some of you are going to be alive when I come back. Well, I think, I think there's three possible, of course, there's more, always more than three, but there's three logical, well, I can't even say that, <laughs> three rational, maybe, explanations. Number one, maybe there's still some disciples alive today, right? No, that's not too rational, too logical, is it? They'd be over 2,000 years old. These guys are like, hurry up, Lord, I'm tired. You know, <laughs> Take me home, beat me up. You know, I'm tired of this stuff. I, I have actually run into people who have told me they believe this. Because they cannot believe the Lord returned in the first century, so that's, they realize, I've got to come up with another explanation, this will be it. Alright? I hope you don't buy that. Secondly, here's another possibility. Yeshua is confused or lying? No? I hope none of you could be convinced of that one. Hang on. Let me give you a really radical one. Yeshua actually did what He said He was going to do and He came back in the lifetime of those disciples. I know that. People just can't seem to wrap their head around that. I'd like to convince everyone of that. It seems like the simple and clear answer that holds to the inspiration of Scripture and it fits with the whole rest of the New Testament. He did what He said He would do. Before you guys all die, I'm coming back. I'm comfortable with that. That just makes sense. Later on in Matthew 24, Matthew 24, chapter talking about the second coming. In verse 34, Yeshua says, this generation is going to see the second coming. This generation. People go, yeah, that means some other... Did the Lord not know what this means? Huh? And did He not know about that? He could have used a far demonstrative. That generation. Which one? That one out there. Some other one. No. This generation. So, if it was to happen in a generation, we know it was to happen within a 40-year period. 40 years of biblical generation. Alright? But speaking of the second coming, here's what confuses people. Yeshua also said this in Matthew 13, 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Boy, so many people use this verse today to prove that we have no knowledge about the future coming of the Lord. We have no idea when He's going to come. Let's break this down and make it simple. That day or hour, okay? He's talking in the context here about the second coming. That's what He's talking about. He's told them that. He's already told them in, the, in verse 34 it's going to happen in this generation, 40 years or so. But they didn't know, listen, the day or the hour. Now, when a woman gets pregnant, we know it's going to be about how long before she has a baby? Forty weeks. Forty weeks. Just That's interesting. Forty years? Forty weeks? Yeah, he uses that illustration. In about forty weeks, she's going to have a baby. We don't know the day or the hour. Now, we're excluding cesareans here, okay? 
at the doctor's proper time, you know. No, we're talking about natural birth. Whenever, you know, the baby comes, we don't know the day or the hour. We know it's about 40 weeks she's going to have a baby. We don't know the day or the hour. That's exactly what we see here. That's what the Lord's saying. And it's interesting that the time prior to the consummation of the kingdom is often referred to as the birth pains of the kingdom. Because the kingdom has birth pains. It's giving birth. And it's 40 years after this, just like it was 40 months for a woman. 40 weeks, yeah. Oh, those, those women jumped in quickly there, boy. I'm not doing that for 40 months. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't have too many kids, would we? All right. <laughs> 40 weeks. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> Everywhere, everywhere, the Scripture makes clear that the second coming of Christ was to happen in the first century. It is always spoken of as being soon, quickly, before all of them died, this generation, always that way. And people are like, we just don't know when. Well, look at what the Lord said. Look, Let's look at James. James is writing to his readers. And he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That's kind of odd. He wrote this 2,000 years ago. Maybe James was a little confused because he, he's telling his people who were living at that time, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Well, that's like 2,000 years, James. How can we be patient that long? He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? being patient about it until he receives the early and the latter rent. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Really? Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James is talking to them about the coming of the Lord, and he tells them to be patient. Because it's at hand, the Greek word here is angizo, at hand, it means near, it means at hand. Then he says the judge is standing at the door. What does that mean? Well, the word door here is thura. Matthew shows us what this word means. In Matthew 24, 33, he says, so also when you see all these things, talking about all these signs, again, this chapter is about the second coming, Matthew 24, you know that he's near at the very thura, same word. So we know that at the door means it's quick. He's standing at the door, he's ready to go out the door. Okay? This is not to be confused with how it works with husband and wife, okay? My wife says, it's time to leave, and I don't move. I says, it's time, we got to go. And I'm like, when you're out the door, I'll be up. Because I know that until she talks to 10 other people or does 10 other things, we're not really going, okay? So I don't like standing at the door. <laughs> I don't like standing at the door because when I'm at the door, I want to go soon. Okay? So that's what he's saying here. To be at the door is to be soon. So in this passage in James, we have Christians who are suffering. They're suffering under the persecution of the Jews. And so James writes them and he says, Be patient, my brothers. And just probably not much longer than 2,000 years, the Lord will return and be okay. That makes no sense, people. It makes no sense. These people are suffering. They need relief. How does that comfort them to tell them, when the Lord comes in a couple thousand years, you, things will be alright? No. 
Let's say you're suffering. Let's say you're suffering because of your faith. Hasn't started happening here, but believe me, it's not far away, okay? Let's say because of your, you're sharing the gospel, you lost your job. Because of that, your landlord's about to evict you. You can't find a job. You have no food. Your family is hungry. You receive a letter from a relative, rich relative, says, hang in there, brother. I'll be there to help you soon. Yeah. What, what good would it do to you if he's not going to come soon? You need help now. These people were suffering now. Same thing to the Thessalonians. He writes the Thessalonians and he tells them, hang in there because the Lord's coming. He's going to avenge those who persecute you. If it didn't happen in their lifetime, something is really wrong here, people. How do so many people miss this? Back to 1 John. So when the second coming happened, John said that when he appears, we shall be like him. Now remember who the we here is, okay? We. This is John who's writing and the people he's writing to in the first century. When he appears, we, first century believers, we're going to be like him. He tells them when the second coming happens, they will be like him. Now in order to understand what John is saying here, we have to understand, and this is so important to understanding the New Testament in general, you have to understand that John's audience lived in a different age than we live. All through the New Testament, we see two ages put in contrast. This age, and this age is not this age. That's, that's where this gets tricky. All right, This age is this age to them, which is not this age to us. But we read this age and we think, yeah, it's this age. And that's how most people interpret it. Yeah, this age right here. There's a contrast. Look at what he says. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So we got two ages there. Now here's what's interesting. The word come at the end of verse, uh, verse there is the Greek word mellow, which means what? About to come. Or the age about to come. See, and it wasn't there yet, but it was close. Again, these hints are everywhere. Everywhere he tells us it's about to happen soon. We could translate the age about to come. About to come for who? For the original audience, which was those in the first century. Look at Ephesians 1.21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. we got two ages again. Two ages. So the New Testament speaks of two ages. This age and the age to come. The understanding of these two ages and when they change, listen, is fundamental to interpreting the Bible. If you're wrong on the age you're living in, you're going to be way out of whack. You're going to be way out of whack. The New Testament writers lived in the age that they called this age. To the New Testament writers, the age to come was future, but it was very near because this age, for them, this age, was about to end. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So they're saying, hey, it's really close. It's really coming close. Paul said plainly that the end of the age was coming upon them, the first century saints. This age was about to end. Now the this age of the Bible was the old covenant age. It was the Jewish age. 
That age came to an end with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So the New Testament writers lived in what the Bible called this age. But we live in what the Bible calls the age to come. Alright? Very different age. In the first century, this age was the age of Old Covenant. It was fading away, the writer of Hebrews says. It ended completely when the Jewish temple was destroyed. The this age of the Bible is now ancient history. So you're reading your Bible and you read this age, you know that age is gone. During this age, prior to the second coming, righteousness was a hope for Christians. Okay? This age. I want to show you some of the differences. Look what he says in Galatians 5.5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait. Oh, they're waiting for something, right? And they're excited about it. This eagerly waiting, this term here, has the idea of we're, we're expecting, we're watching for any minute this is going to happen. We're eagerly await what? The hope of righteousness. Now you know something about hope, right? You're hoping for it. What's, what's that mean? You don't have it. Anybody hope for what they have? That's kind of dumb, isn't it? I mean, really. Man, I really hope I get it. It's right there. Oh, yeah. But I hope I get it. No. Okay, they're hoping for righteousness. Well, during the this age, they also were hoping for salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 But since we belong to the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. They're hoping for salvation in the this age. Eternal life was also a hope. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised. So God promised it, and we're hoping for it. But guess what? They don't have it. They're into this age. Titus 3-7, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now listen, we understand this, but the Bible clearly teaches it that you don't hope for what you have. Look at Romans 8. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. If you have it, you don't hope. If if you're hoping for it, just because you don't have it. So in this age of the New Testament, eternal life, salvation, and righteousness were all a hope for those who lived in that age. Eternal life, salvation, righteousness, listen, became the full possession of the church at the second coming, which happened at the end of the Old Covenant age. Now notice what Yeshua said the believers would receive in the age to come. Listen, if you got commentaries, look this up in the commentaries. You will get a kick out of it, okay? Because they just, most of them will do this. They'll just skip right over. They won't say a word about it, okay? That's a smart thing to do, okay? You don't have a clue, keep your mouth shut, keep on moving, okay? But the ones who try to explain it, it's funny, all right? Yeshua said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time. Now, now is when he's, the time he's talking about it. Okay, what are they going to receive? You're going to receive houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. 
with persecutions. And in the age to come, you get eternal life. In the age to come, they didn't have it? No, it was a hope. Commenting on, and in the age to come, eternal life. Sweet says this, the age which is to follow the parousia. He's right. He nailed it. But he, he, see, he thought he was living in this age. So he is still looking for it as a hope. So Sweet would have to say, we don't have eternal life. Weist, in his word study, says this. <laughs> I love this. He says, the authorities are silent on all this. And the present writer confesses that he is at a loss to suggest an interpretation. We said, I have no clue what this means. He says, the best he can do is offer the usage of the Greek words in question. So let me explain to you what the Greek words here mean, but I don't know what this means at all. Because, you know, he says, it just sounds like we don't have eternal life yet. It's to the age to come. See, they knew the age to come was after this age. They just didn't know when the age changed. So they're still living back in an age that's not their age. This phrase is troubling to many people. So we saw eternal life was a hope to those who lived in this age. But it is a present possession of all believers in the age to come, which is the age we live in. The age to come began at AD 70 onward. All right? So, what did John mean when he says, When he appears, we will be like him? He's talking about the second coming here. I think he's referring to righteousness. Okay? We're going to be like him. As we saw, righteousness was a hope for them during the transition, but at the second coming, all believers received the righteousness of Christ. The nature of our likeness to Christ will be a likeness in respect to righteousness. As the next verse makes it clear. Verse 3. The believers also put on immortality. He says, for this perishable body must put on imperishable. The context here is the second coming. The mortal body must put on immortality. So, there was a change that took place at the second coming. Now believers are immortal. That would make me think they weren't immortal before that. Which means they were mortal. Which means they died. So at the second coming, believers become immortal. They're given eternal life. They become positionally righteous. Now John said that we shall be like Him. What does that mean? Well, I think most people have this wrong, okay? The word like here, homoios. Homoios means similar. Similar, okay? Similar. That's really important. Similar in appearance, similar in character. This same word is used in Matthew 13, 31. He put another parable before them and said, the kingdom of heaven is homoios. It's similar to a grain of mustard seed. See, if you want to say this homoios means we're going to be exactly like Christ, well then, the kingdom of God is exactly like a mustard seed. How does that work out? That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It's a comparison. He's like that. We're going to be like Christ. Now we're like Christ in the sense, listen, that we have the righteousness of Christ. That's how we're like Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. He took our sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We have 
The very righteousness of Christ. Listen, believer. This is not talking about your practice. This is talking about your position before God. And if you're not as righteous as Christ, you will not get into heaven because that's the only righteousness God accepts. Believers living in this age could not say they had the righteousness of Christ. It was something they hoped for. They would get it at the second coming. We have it right now. Lazarus goes on to say, because we shall see Him as He is. Who's the we here? First century readers of this epistle. We're going to see Him, he says. This, this word see here is used of the eyewitness encounter in chapter 1, verse 1-3. through three, But it's also used of those who deny Christ by keeping on sinning in chapter 3, verse 6. So see sometimes means see with your eyes. See sometimes means perceive or understand. Now listen. Let me make a distinction here that you've got to understand. To see Him as He is is different than to see Him as He was. Right? The believers who lived at that time, lived at the time of Christ, saw Christ. They walked with Him. They ate with Him. They hung out with Him. But they saw Him in His humiliation during His incarnation. But the Lord prayed that those same disciples would one day see Him in His glory. In John 17, the Lord prays, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me. The given. In the Bible, the given are a gift that God the Father gave to Son for going to the cross. The given. The ones You've given Me, believers, may be with Me where I am to see My glory that You have given Me. I want them to see My glory. Because you love me before the foundation of the world. You see what this verse is saying? Yeshua is saying that He desires that the given, believers, be with Him in heaven to see the, my glory. Now, you don't see it in ESV, but there's a purpose clause here, so that. He wants them to be with Him so that they can see His glory. The glory the Father has given Him. Now, look what He prays in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The pre-incarnate glory of God. The full manifestation of God. The original disciples, they saw Yeshua's glory. Uh, John 1.14 says they saw His glory. How did they see His glory? They saw Him do miracles. Right? I mean, they saw Him do some incredible stuff. Again, we talked earlier about the boat. We're on the boat. Calm the storm. What else happened when that miracle happened? They ended up at the port they were going to. Boom! They, they were there. And they're like, uh, how'd you do that, Lord? Okay? Transported. Bang! The, the storm stops. It's glass. Now we're at the port. Wow, that is cool. Alright? They saw His glory in the miracles. They saw His glory in His crucifixion and His resurrection. They saw the majesty of His pre-incarnate deity. But He wanted them to see His full glory that He had before the incarnation. He wanted believers to see Him as He is, not as He was. Pre-incarnate glory. Did the first century saints see Christ as He is? Now remember, at the time of this writing, Christ is crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended to heaven. He's in full glory with the Lord. So did those first century saints see Him as He is? 
He says you're going to see him as he is. All right, track with me here, okay? I believe they did see him as he is. Meaning, I believe they saw him in full glory. Now, let's see if I can demonstrate that, okay? Notice what Yeshua says to Caiaphas, Matthew 26. Yeshua said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All right? Three times he says you, the personal pronoun, you, you, you. Who's he talking to? Well, verse 63 tells us he's talking to the high priest. The high priest at that time was Caiaphas. So Caiaphas asked Yeshua, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? And Yeshua answered Caiaphas by saying, Caiaphas, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. If Caiaphas saw this, and Christ said he was going to see it, that must have happened in Caiaphas' lifetime, right? He didn't say, after you're dead, someday you'll see me coming in my... No, no. Now, notice the similarities between Yeshua's answer to Caiaphas and what he said to the disciples in Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Yeshua told Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He said to the disciples, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. He told Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He told his disciples, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's obvious the same event is in both passages. Notice Caiaphas' response to Yeshua's statement. He says, you're going to see me coming in the clouds. And Caiaphas says, the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. Well, what did Yeshua say that was blasphemous? He said He was coming on the clouds. Who comes on the clouds? God. God comes on the clouds. Alright? He understood that He's claiming to be Messiah. In order to understand what He's saying, we need to understand what's behind the idea of coming on the clouds. You've got to get your 21st century mentality of clouds, that white little puffy thing out there. You know, someone somehow standing on it. I don't know how you'd stand on it. You'd fall right through it. Okay? But that's not what it's talking about. And this is why we have to know the first three quarters of the Bible. These concepts are developed in what people call the Old Testament. So when you get to the New Testament, all these writers are drawing on that. If you haven't read that, if you don't understand that, you're going to be lost. You're going to make up your own definitions for things and you're going to be in trouble. Okay? Listen, God's coming on clouds is a symbolic way of speaking of God's presence, God's judgment, and God's salvation. That's what When He comes on clouds, that's what it means. All through the Tanakh, God was coming on clouds in salvation for His people and for judgment of His enemies. His presence, they said, was manifest in the coming on clouds. So for the disciples and Caiaphas, seeing Yeshua coming in the clouds was to see Him as He is. To see Him in the full glory of His Father. It was to see Him in the glory He had before the Incarnation. They saw Him, listen, as He is 
when they saw the destruction of Jerusalem. The Lord stood with them one day and He says, you see these buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another that's not thrown down. And they said, Lord, when? When will these things be? And it's going to happen at the end of the age. It's going to happen at the second coming. He told them. And they saw this happen and it was the manifestation of His deity. He was coming on clouds when Jerusalem was destroyed. So they saw that. They saw His glory. They said, hey, this is exactly what He said was going to happen. And it's happening. And listen, writers from that time, Tacitus, who was a, a writer, Roman writer, Josephus, they wrote about these things and they said there were signs in heaven. They talked about chariots and fire and armies circling Jerusalem when this happened. Now, these are not Christians saying this, okay? These are just pagans saying, oh my word, something is going on here. Because it was much more than a physical battle on earth. There was a spiritual battle happening between God and the gods, okay? So there was something much bigger going on here because we're changing covenants. It's a big deal. But what I want you to see is they saw Him. They saw Him on the clouds coming in judgment. Not they saw physical presence, but His presence was manifest in the judgment that took place. Alright, so what about us? When do we become like Him? The second you trust the Lord for your salvation, you become like Him. You don't have to wait for anything. There's no waiting for us, okay? It's Because we're in the age to come. We're not hoping for righteousness. We're hoping for salvation. We have it. And when you trust Christ at that moment... You're given righteousness. You're given eternal life. You're made part of the body of Christ. You're sure of heaven as you're already there. Because you have Christ's righteousness. And every one of us who have trusted Christ can say, I am as righteous as Christ. You say that, people will go crazy on you. They will. And that's what's fun about it, okay? But it's true. Because listen, if you're not as righteous as Christ... All you have is self-righteousness and that will damn you. That's only righteousness accepted as a sign. But guess what? He gives it to us when we trust Him. They saw Him as He is in the destruction of Jerusalem. We live, people, in the age to come. So important understanding these ages and when they change. We have eternal life now. We have righteousness now. We're not waiting for anything. Alright, one more verse quickly. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Now, most people see this verse and say, okay, if you're hoping for Christ to come, then you're going to work hard at living a pure life. That's the common interpretation. I don't think it means anything close to that. Okay? I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I don't think he's saying, well, if you know He's coming, you're going to work hard to be pure. Because look at how you're going to be pure as He is pure. So we're going to work that up somehow? Huh? <laughs> Good luck, right? <laughs> John says, go ahead. Alright, everyone who has this hope. Now we've talked about hope, but biblical hope is not, man, I, you know, I sure hope it happens. No, that's not biblical hope. That's not how they use it. Today it would indicate something of a contingency, an expectancy that something will happen like, you know, I sure hope I can make it the next payday. Or I sure hope that storm doesn't come here. That's, you know, that's just kind of a wish. You're uneasiness, uncertainty about something. When the Bible talks about hope, that's not what it's talking about. Okay? Not at all. Futurists believe that the second coming is something that has not yet happened. Thus, believers must look forward to it with hope. 
But you know what's really sad? Because we talked about earlier, you don't hope for what you have. You know, people will read Revelation, you know, 21. Man, look at this. The Lord is going to come and He's going to dwell with His people. Man, I can't wait for that to happen. Uh, it happened. He's dwelling with us right now. He's here. He's with us. We don't have to go anywhere to a temple somewhere. You know, we don't have to go to find sacred space because you know what? We are sacred space. God lives here. That's the glories of the new covenant. But people are hoping for that someday. That's really a sad thing. It's sad to hope for what you have. All right? All right, let me share with you kind of a different perspective on what I think he's saying here. I think an equivalent to John's expression here, whoever, everyone who has this hope would be whoever believes in him. In the Greek, the grammar structures are the same. All right? Whoever believes in him, whoever hopes in him. And I think the idea, the individual who has the sure hope of being like the Savior is one who has believed in him. They've trusted in Christ. So everyone who has this hope is a person who's trusted. So they're similar, all right? They're, I, let me say they're identical. You, you're trusting in him because you have believed in him. That person purifies himself as he is pure. The phrase purifies himself points to the causality of the believer's faith in Christ. When a person responds to the gospel message by believing, he is said to cause the purification which automatically follows part and parcel with the washing of regeneration. They have believed in Him. They have been made pure. They purify themselves by their faith. Because, you know, people, we try to say, well, this is just living a holy life, you know, because we know He's coming. You're going to live a holy life as He is pure? Like John said, good luck with that. Okay? What he is saying here, what I see him saying, is to have this hope is to have believed in Him, and to have believed in Him is to have been pure made pure. The only way that we can be as pure as He is pure is to have His righteousness. And this righteousness was the believers was the believers prior to the coming of Christ in the sense of already but not yet. In other words, they had righteousness because it was locked in because it was sure because of the future. So they were looking forward to that with hope, but if they had trusted Christ, they were going to be pure as He is pure. Once Christ returned, all believers are like Him. We are righteous. We are positionally pure before Him. This is our position. Now, don't mess this, don't confuse this with your practice. Because most people get all hung up on practice. And I look at my life and I'm not quite doing right, okay? And I'm not righteous as Christ, and so therefore I must not be saved. And you get in this big turmoil. Listen, because of your position, you're called to live that out in practice. Be holy because you are holy. Be righteous because you have the righteousness of Christ. If you didn't, you wouldn't have much chance of doing that at all. But this is what abiding is all about. It's walking with Him. It's living with Him. It's our mind is focused on Him. We spend time in the Word of God. We walk like He walks. Listen, people, the church today is so far away from what God has called us to be that it's sad. It's really sad. We don't look any different than the world around us looks. And that's why they're not interested in what we have. Because what, you have, what is the difference? And when we come to the place where we love our enemies, where we bless those who persecute us, they're going to look at us and say something. What kind of unworldly love is this? When they see the love of the Father in us. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, give us the heart of Bereans, Father. May we look into the scriptures to seek, Father, to understand the truth that you have laid out for us there. Help us not to believe things we hear from other people, but help us not to reject things without a deep study on our own to find out, is this true? Is this right? Is this what the Scripture says? Give us, Lord, the heart of Bereans to dig into the Scriptures that we might know You, Lord, and that we might demonstrate who You are by the way we live, day by day. Use us, Father. May we bear Your image everywhere we go. Amen. Cheryl. In Colossians, where he talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory, so they didn't have, I don't understand, you might have explained this before, but the Holy Spirit, they didn't have. They had the Holy Spirit in what was called a down payment form. In other words, Mm -hmm. it was going, it was guaranteed to them. See, that's the thing. In this age, people look at it and say, well, they had these things. They, They had them in down payment form. In other words, they were sure because God was going to make it sure, but not until AD 70. So then they'd get eternal life. They had the Holy Spirit, the Bible calls it, as a down payment or engagement. In other words, it was a guarantee of the purchase position. It's like a diamond ring, you know, of course. We can't use that anymore because engagements can be broken, but God wasn't going to break His engagement. He gave them the Holy Spirit saying, I'm going to seal you until the day of redemption. Then you will have the Spirit. We have, listen, we have everything today all right people say well should we pray to the the father or the son listen it's a trinity they're all one they're all the same okay and i don't think that we have to make that much distinction today but the scripture does lay out you know pray in this way you know so we do that but they're one and we have the whole holy spirit we got the son we got the father we got the twin the trinity dwelling within us we are the dwelling place of god he doesn't live in a temple anymore he moved into us. My wife, I give my wife such a hard time about this because she'll always talk about the sanctuary. And I'm like, we're the sanctuary. It's not a building. And that gives you the impression that building over there, God's hanging out in there. No, He's hanging out right here. I'm the sanctuary. You're the sanctuary. We are holy ground. And you look at how they treated the temple. We're the temple. That's how we should treat us. And we should treat other believers. Cheryl? You're right. That's right. That's a positional reality. Okay. In other words, you got it all, you got everything, you're mature now. Okay. You're, see, God was building a house for himself, Ephesians said. All right. We're living stones. He's building the house. We're the bricks. God inhabited that house in AD 70, He moved into it. It was being built. It was in a process of growing. See, as the new covenant was growing, the old covenant was diminishing. Hebrews says, it's growing old and it's ready to pass away. And in AD 70, God squashed it. It passed away. It's no more. It's done. That system's done. AD 70, we're complete. We're in Him. We have everything that was promised to Him by faith. It was a mature process. It was a growing process. And it, you know, people think, well, just boom, everything happened at Pentecost and it was all done. No, it wasn't. Like we said, we saw they didn't have righteousness, they didn't have salvation, they didn't have eternal life. They had a hope of it. Because if they trusted Christ, they knew they were going to get it. See, it's locked in. They're going to get it. But you don't have it, so you hope for it.
I appreciate those questions. We want to make this as clear as I can. All right? John. I have a problem with, uh, and I don't know if I'm even interpreting it correctly. When you talk about living for God and doing things for the Lord and all that kind of stuff, right. you do that because you're going to get rewards in eternity. Am I right? I think that's one motive. I think the main motive is gratitude. But the Lord clearly says, someday I'm going to reward you. You know, and it's, it's kind of cool when you think about it. You know, this is all grace. Everything we have is a grace. But God says, you know, if you honor me by the way you live, I'm going to reward you. What does that mean? I don't think it's, you know, here you get 10 bucks. I think the eternal realm, like I said, we've talked about this. This life is patterned after that life. So much of what we see here is going to be similar to that, you know, in the fact of ruling and doing things. They're not just going to be sitting around on a harp, on a cloud, playing a harp, you know, with nothing to do. I think we're going to be busy. I think we're going to be serving. I think we're going to be doing stuff throughout eternity. But there's going to be positions based on how faithful were you with what you had. And we see that throughout the Scriptures. I'm talking to them. And then you talk about the Bema seat, but you're talking to us, and I'm going to flip back and talk to them. Okay, he was, listen, yeah, okay, good. All right, audience relevance. He's talking to them about the Bema, all right? A lot of things that he talks to them about, we have to understand, does this carry on? All right, you're all, he says, going to stand. And he says this to, to the Corinthians, he says it to the Roman Christians, so I'm saying he's saying this to the church. Church, you're going to stand before the Bema seat. I think it happened at 8070, but I think it's ongoing. When you die, you stand before the Lord. It's not like, okay, all these people had to stand before the Lord and give an account. We're free of it. We don't have to worry about it. No. I think it's ongoing. I think that when we die, that's our entrance into the, into the eternal glory, and we give an account. People think the Bema seat is like, all the believers are all there, gathered all around. No, I think it's an individual, one-on-one thing. And God can do that. Okay. Why would God reward a person and give them rule of six cities, wherever that is, right. when the kingdom is not like this? It's not meat and drink, and it's not physical. <coughs> so I don't know why. And then, and then, <laughs> and then in eternity, it switches back. Well, I just, I'm just telling you what the Scriptures say. You know. <laughs> I'm not saying I have all the answers. I've never said that. I never will say that. Because when I start thinking I have some answers, I find out I don't have any answers. You know. Your paradigm shifts again. Yeah, you, you keep trying to learn and grow. And that's what it's about. That's what to me is exciting. I believe that however long I live and however much I study, I will always be learning something. That excites me. That's how our God, I think for all eternity, we'll be learning about our God and how great He is and how awesome He is. I just know that He's called us. You know, he, He's given us through grace what we have. But He said, I want you to honor me by the way you live. And we can do that. And it, it not only does it maybe get us some kind of reward or some kind of position in heaven, when you live for the Lord now, it gives you a life worth living. Okay? It just, it just is worth doing. Okay? Honoring the Lord gives you 
blessing right now, right here. And you see people who, they're Christians and they choose to go their own way, and they end up miserable. Okay? Sooner or later, they end up miserable. So, so and, and, and another thing you know, it's like dozen uh, and roses. I'm just, I'm just saying, we, each one of us is a rose, okay? Like a dozen of roses, I'm just trying to, okay, and then the first rose, the second rose, and the third rose, if that rose, those three roses presented to somebody that he wants to show that rose to, I mean that too, then each rose has a potential. But then that rose, a person's here rose, but then in each individual rose, it's a characteristic that he wants to show a little difference in. Is that sort of like, uh, you know, like Sorry, my mind's stuck on the bachelor right now. Like a bouquet of flowers. He, even though it's a rose, he wants to show a person something in him that for his glory, something in that rose is You're talking about individuality of believers? Yeah. And, that, and what God's they, using in them? Right. For that... Well, that, that's the thing, people. Yeah. We're individuals. We're individuals, yeah. and we're different. Right. Yeah. And we usually tend to criticize people that aren't like us because, of course, we're perfect, right? So everybody else needs some work, right? But don't you thank God for the differences? Yeah. You know that there are there that we see in one another, and you know that. I mean, we're just different, and God uses different people for different things. It would be horrible if we were all the same. <laughs> it would be horrible. You know, we need to, instead of criticizing differences, we need to celebrate them. You know, God has made individuals for His glory. And we learn a lot through other people. 